Turn to Genesis chapter 37. This Sunday and for the next five Sundays of the summer, we're going to be working our way through the story of Joseph from Genesis 37 to 50. So Genesis 37, we're beginning the story this morning together. And the title of this morning's message, although I'm not going to sing the song from the musical, is Jacob and Sons. Okay, hum it in your head. Maybe afterwards. (laughs) The tale of Joseph is one of the best-known stories of all time. It has all the ingredients of a gripping adventure. Conflict, envy, murderous plots, desperate circumstances, impossible coincidences, and much more. It is a thrilling story in its own right. But its real significance lies in the fact that it's part of a much bigger story, the story of the whole Bible the story of God's great rescue plan to save humanity from sin. Now, the plan is only just beginning to unfold in the book of Genesis. It starts slow, with God making promises, first of all, to just one man, Abraham, and then to his son, Isaac, and then to his son, Jacob. But here in Genesis 37, it begins to gather momentum. Verse 2 tells us, that this chapter is certainly not just about a technicolored dream coat, okay, but kids carry on designing because it's, it's in there. But it's not all about that. It's not even just about Joseph. It's about the generations of Jacob, about Jacob and his whole family, including Joseph. And through this growing family, God has a plan to rescue all the nations of the earth. The only problem is, as we'll see, they're a pretty ragtag bunch, this family. In fact, they're such a mess that as you read through the final chapters of Genesis, you can't help but wonder, how on earth will God keep his promises to make this family into a great nation who are going to bring blessing to all the world? Well, the beginning of the answer is found in chapter 37. So let's, let's begin. Let's read the first four verses Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, it's another name for Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him just in these opening verses we learn a lot about this family let's meet each one of them in turn first of all we have Joseph he's the 11th of 12 brothers He's a shepherd, and he's just 17 years old. His brothers are grown men, and he's still just a boy. And as the younger brother, it's his job to help out in the fields, to do menial tasks, to serve them in their work. Now, in Old Testament narratives like this, the first thing that you see a character doing, or the first thing you're told about them, usually says something very significant about their character, about what they're like. And the first thing we're told that Joseph does is he brings a bad report of his brothers to his father. 
Now, it may well be that his brothers were behaving badly. If you read back in Genesis a bit, uh, these are a motley crew of brothers. They've been up to some serious mischief so far. Nevertheless, in the Old Testament, bad report usually suggests giving a false or an exaggerated report. So just think about the spies in Numbers 13 who brought a bad report back to the people of Israel uh, after they'd uh, checked out the land of Canaan and they were punished for 40 years in the wilderness for what they shared. In Proverbs 10 verse 18, the same word is translated slander. So Joseph is out to get his brothers into trouble. And next we have Jacob. Jacob is... Before we get any ideas, fathers amongst us, Jacob is not a model father in this story, not someone to imitate. Despite having seen the destructive effects of favoritism in his own family when he was growing up, now he's guilty of favoritism as well. Verse 3, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Now showing favoritism is, of course, never a wise or loving or godly thing to do as a parent. But why does Jacob choose Joseph in particular? Perhaps because Joseph is the first of the two sons that Jacob has had with Rachel, the, the real love of his life. Maybe that's part of it. But that phrase, son of his old age, suggests a further reason. Many years earlier, God's, uh, Abraham's promised son Isaac was described as the child of Abraham's old age, which suggests perhaps Joseph believes, Jacob believes, that all of God's promises of blessing and rescue will ultimately continue through Joseph's line. Well, whatever the reason, in the end, I think the biggest reason Jacob has a favorite son is that he, just like his sons, just like you and I here this morning, is a sinner in need of God's rescue. There are no human heroes in this story that we're going to hear unfolded in the weeks to come. Worse still than having a favorite son, Jacob makes sure that his other sons know it too by making jo uh, Joseph a robe of many colors. Now, this is not just a, a tie-dye t-shirt or a very expensive suit. This is a royal garment. Certainly not the kind of thing that you would wear to go and work out in the fields. And it's interesting, the next time the brothers go shepherding, Joseph is not with them. His robe is like his promotion. It's marking him out now as the manager over his brothers rather than a helper to them. And then we have the brothers. Uh, funny enough, the word brother appears 21 times in this chapter alone. Uh, but you'll look long and hard to find any evidence of brotherly love in this chapter. Just as passionately as Jacob loves Joseph, so his brothers hate Joseph with a passion. According to verse 4, they hate him so much that they can't even bring themselves to greet him. And as we'll soon see, they hate him enough to plot to kill him. So things are not looking good. This family that's meant to be God's rescue to the world is just about ready to self-destruct. <coughs> and then we might ask, where is God in all of this? He's not mentioned in the opening verses. In fact, he's not mentioned by name anywhere in this chapter. And yet his fingerprints are everywhere to be seen. In fact, the writer of Genesis deliberately doesn't mention God's name because he wants us, the readers, to lean in and look for him. We're meant to ask the question, where is God in this? 
What's he doing? How is he at work behind the scenes? And as we look closer, we discover that God is present everywhere and at work in everything that takes place. The life of Joseph is just one long, continuous display of God's providence. And if we're not sure this morning what the word providence means, uh, just listen to this definition from Liam Golliger. He says, Providence is a word every Christian should know, for it refers to God's good government of our lives. We are not the victims of luck, fate or karma. Rather, God has mapped out our path from before time began. He is active in the circumstances, surprises and choices of our lives and is all the time leading us towards his purpose. Now, the first and the most obvious place that we see God's providence in this chapter is in the sending of Joseph's dreams. So let's, let's read on from verse 5. Now, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now, I think there's no doubt that the way that Joseph parades his dream before his brothers, watching them grow increasingly bitter and angry with him, surely suggests that he did it in an arrogant and boastful way. The dreams were real enough, but Joseph's intention in sharing them was, was surely to rub his brothers' noses in his new superiority at home. Joseph is not a likable character here and right now. Nevertheless, his dreams reveal that God is indeed present and that he's providentially at work. One day these dreams will come true. God will appoint Joseph to rescue and rule over his family. But he gives the dreams ahead of time so that on that future day, they will all understand that not a single circumstance of their lives falls outside of God's good and sovereign saving plans. In the meantime, though, it seems like Joseph's dreams are just about to be shattered. Let's read on verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their flock, father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So Jacob sent Joseph from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. 
And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. Uh, now, for anyone who has a teenager, and we've ascertained that there are lots of parents of teenagers in the room this morning, uh, just imagine sending one of your teens on a multi-day, 50-mile journey alone on foot. Think about all the unknowns, especially in the ancient world, that such a journey would involve. Will they be safe? Will they get lost? Will they come back? Will their food and water last? Will Joseph be able to find his brothers? There are just so many ways that this could go wrong. And in fact, it does go wrong when Joseph finally arrives in Shechem to find that his brothers are nowhere to be seen. Uh, there's no mobile phone, of course, to call them on, find out where they are. There's no Google Maps to track their location. To find them now really is pretty much impossible. But for a second time, we see God's providential hand at work. It just so happens that as Joseph is wandering the fields of Shechem, looking a bit lost, without a hope of finding his brothers, he meets a stranger. And not only does this man actually approach Joseph and ask him what he's looking for, uh, but it turns out that this man is the only man probably in the area who's able to help him. He just so happened to overhear the brothers say that they were moving on several miles further to Dothan. Just imagine how differently things would have turned out here if this man hadn't appeared. Joseph might well have wandered around aimlessly a bit more and then turned back for home. He would never end up in Egypt to save his family from a future famine. There would be no descendants. There would be no Christ. There would be no Christians here this morning. But God is active here. Just as he spoke to Joseph in his dreams, God is now present with Joseph in the provision of this stranger. There, this is no chance encounter. This is not good luck for Joseph. This is the wonderful providence of God at work. Verse 17, so Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colours that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. So clearly, Joseph's brothers are still bitter towards Joseph and his dreams. And when they see him alone, traveling towards them in the distance, they concoct this dastardly plan. First to kill him, but then with the intervention of Reuben to instead throw him into a pit, which was basically like a dried up well, and leave him there to slowly starve to death. And they're pretty ruthless as well. They brutally assault their own brother. Like a bunch of wild animals, they strip him of his robe like they're tearing at his flesh. And then having thrown Joseph into the pit to starve to death, they sit down together at the top to eat their lunch. 
within earshot of their brother's cries for help. And as they confess later on in chapter 42, they say, we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. It's really a horrific scene, a terrible picture of human wickedness. But then as they eat their lunch, it just so happens that another option presents itself. Verse 25, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Now of all the brothers, only Reuben takes pity on Joseph. Perhaps particularly feeling the weight of responsibility of being the eldest brother. He first of all stops them from killing him and later plans to come back and rescue him from the pit. So when Reuben uh, returns to find that Joseph is gone, that his other brothers have sold him into slavery, he is beside himself. When 20, verse 29, when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? He can't go home and tell his father what's really happened. But the brothers aren't out of cunning ideas just yet. Verse 31, then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colours and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. So they leave Jacob to draw the obvious conclusion. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Now, it's just interesting to notice the irony here as well. Jacob once deceived his own father with these very same things, with a garment and a dead goat. And now he is deceived by those very same things. Verse 34, then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. And thus his father wept for him. Jacob is, is understandably distraught. But again, his level of distress only serves to highlight his favoritism again. You see, he's mourning for Joseph like he's lost his one and only son. With Joseph gone, Jacob acts like his life is just done. He has no one else to love or live for. Perhaps, though, it's not just favoritism that makes him mourn so deeply. If you remember, this chapter's already hinted and, and pointed at the fact that maybe Jacob wrongly saw Joseph as the son through whom all of God's promises were going to be fulfilled. In Jacob's mind, if Joseph is dead, all hope is lost. God, ha God himself has failed and forsaken them. 
which is why the final verse of this chapter is so artfully placed. Verse 36, Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So as, as Jacob is here weeping, the narrator deliberately jumps location to tell us that Joseph is in fact very much alive and has arrived safely in Egypt. The very place, as we're going to see in future weeks, where God intends him to be in order to fulfill the dreams, rescue his family and preserve the promise of a future Messiah. Which points us, before we finish this morning, points us again to the, the real focus and the message of the Joseph story. This is all about God and his good and sovereign purposes. His providence in the lives of a sinful, messed up family, in the midst of a sinful, rebellious world. And as we've read the story, we've seen God's sovereignty in three particular ways. First of all, we've seen that God is sovereign in the smallest details and circumstances of our lives. Uh, just think about all of those seeming coincidences that were needed in order to get Joseph down to Egypt. Jacob sending Joseph to check on his brothers. The stranger Joseph meets who tells him where his brothers have moved on to. Reuben's absence when the other brothers decided to sell Joseph. The passing caravan of Ishmaelites who just so happened to be on their way to Egypt as the brothers were trying to dispose of Joseph, and many more. All of these things needed to happen in exactly the right order at just the right time to get Joseph to where he needs to be to save his family. This is not chance or coincidence. This is God providentially at work, even through the hardships and the tragedies to bring about his good and loving purposes. And this is the same God who is today at work in even the smallest, hardest, and most inexplicable details of our lives to bring about his eternally good purposes in the lives of those who trust him. And because he is like this, and because he works like this for our good, we can trust him. Secondly, we've seen that God is sovereign over human sin. Not that he's responsible for human sin in any way, but he does work out his sovereign purposes in and through it. Just think about Jacob's favoritism, Joseph's boasting and tale-telling, the brother's hatred towards Joseph, Judah's suggestion to sell Joseph as a slave. Human sin and rebellion cannot thwart God's purposes. And more than that, as we'll see in future weeks, uh, in God's mercy, he is able to use past sins, our past sins even, even the very worst things we have done and are most ashamed of to humble us and bring us to bow the knee even more gladly before the saviour that he so wonderfully provides. And thirdly and finally, we've seen that God is sovereign in bringing about our rescue. This chapter is not just about God's plan to rescue Jacob and his family from a future famine. It is full of teasers that foreshadow the one who would one day come and secure our rescue, the Lord Jesus Christ. He rightly occupied an honoured position in his father's house. He was the one before whom the real sun, moon and stars already bowed. And yet he was willing to set aside his 
royal robes, to be demoted, clothed in human flesh, becoming like us as he set out to find us. Like Jacob, God the Father was uh, willing to send his most beloved son out into the world in search of his other children. But unlike Jacob, he knew full well how it would turn out when Jesus found us. Jesus, like Joseph, was condemned and rejected by his brothers, by his own people. Even though, unlike Joseph, he was entirely innocent of any crime, any malice. He, like Joseph, was sold for a small handful of silver. Like Joseph, he was condemned to death. But unlike Joseph, he had no older brother to step in and lessen the penalty. Jesus willingly surrendered himself into the hands of wicked men who first tore his clothes from him and then brutally beat and killed him. And yet God the Father, unlike Jacob, did not respond in hopelessness and despair. He knew that his son's death was not the evidence that God's rescue had failed. It was in fact the proof that divine love had triumphed. The blood-stained cross, the crucified Christ would be the doorway through which millions upon millions of sinful men and women, boys and girls, would be saved from death and enter into a new life with God forever. We who are here this morning need rescuing just as much as Joseph and his brothers. We are just as messed up, proud, treacherous and guilty as them. But the story of Joseph is here to remind us that God has been providentially at work all throughout human history so that you and I could be here this morning placing all our hope in Jesus and so that we could marvel again at the wisdom of God in the gospel and see with new gratitude the remarkable providence of God in our own salvation bringing us to faith in Christ there is no one like our God there is no one like Jesus. There is no rescue like the one that God in his kindness has provided through him.